Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on into the cabin. It's getting a bit hot here in the Shenandoah, isn't it? We focus on the short fiction here at Tales to Terrify, and I hope you don't mind me giving an occasional shout-out to horror fiction somewhere else. I've been working through the 2015 Goodreads Best Horror nominees. Sarah Lotz's Day 4 was pretty good. Wish I knew that there was a sequel before I started it. I prefer to go into movies and books pretty much blind, so that one was on me. Christina Henry's Alice was a treat. If you think Lewis Carroll reads like a strange trip down the psychedelic rabbit hole, Christina Henry takes you on a bad, violent, twisted trip. I'm reading Seth Graham Smith's The Last American Vampire. Got about a quarter of the way into the book, enjoying it the whole way, and then found out it's the sequel to Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which I skipped because I judged the book by its cover and thought it sounded stupid. Graham Smith can put words together quite well. I think I'll read Nick Cutter's The Deep next. His The Troop was a real good read. But I've actually digressed. Did I ever mention to you that I really liked watching Monster Vision with Joe Bob Briggs on TNT and Up All Night with Rhonda on USA back in the 90s? They usually aired pretty bad monster movies or horror films. Not always bad, but I think that there were more misses than hits. But I'd enjoy them. I recently saw a movie that called back to all of those and did it quite right. If you saw John Wick, you'll know what I'm talking about. You've seen this movie before, but not done quite so well. The movie I'm talking about is The Invitation. It was a 2015 release, but only just came to my local theaters, which suggests to me that if you're interested in seeking it out, you might have to do a bit of work. You've seen the story before, but it's executed just so well. And the ending? Nothing new but classic. Check it out. On the topic of movies, have you heard David Raikland's recent work? As a reminder, he's the composer of Tales of Terrify's theme music and has gone largely uncredited, in my humble opinion, for quite some time. Let me tell you a little bit about him. David Raikland began studying keyboard and composing at age five. He wrote, directed, and scored his first film at age nine. He attended, then taught at UCLA, USC, and Cal Arts. Among his mentors are John Williams and Mel Powell. He has worked for Fox, Sony, Disney, PBS, and Sprint. David's composing is recognized by awards, including a 2004 American Music Center grant. Dr. Raiklin has composed music and sound design for theater, dance, television, cell phone, museums, concerts, documentaries, and features, including Boone Style, 30,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and special effects directed by Ben Burt. He's also scoring a groundbreaking video game. David Raikland's compositions have been performed at the Hollywood Bowl and the First Disney Hall. David is host of a successful radio program, Classical Fan Club, where guests include Joshua Bell and John Williams. Current projects include a thrilling revelation of the Soviet space program, The Secret Life of Gagarin, featuring Elliot Gould. 
He is scoring the feature de debut of teen director Anne-Sophia Dutoit, Faded Memories. In the show notes, I've linked to a trailer for a current project, Space Command. Let's get to our fiction. We have a single longer story for you this evening from William Stickle. W.B. Stickle lives in upstate New York with his family. He works for the Air Force by day and reads and writes as much as possible at night. He has been published in various magazines and anthologies to include Abomination, E-Fiction Horror, Sanitarium, Fantastic Horror, Trinity Gateway's Shadows of the Mind, and Cruentus Libri's The Dead Sea. He loves fiction in the short form and is deathly afraid of Teletubbies. Stickle describes his story as an unflinching tale about the Holocaust and one of its darker participants. Selection was originally featured in the July 2012 issue of Abomination magazine. Casapa, Paraguay, 1968. The old man lifted his coffee cup from its saucer and extended it out before him. To Nordrhein-Westfalen, he said in a toast of his home province, may you always prosper, with or without me. He let the thought linger for a trice, then took a sip from the cup. The Melita brand's rich German flavor swirled on his tongue, invigorating his taste buds and making him smile. Taking another sip, he stared across the villa's large backyard, looking past the garden, past the white stone walls that surrounded his property, and settled his gaze on the colorful Paraguayan countryside. There, among the cassava and sugar cane fields, he concentrated his meditations, conjuring images from his past. This morning it was Köln he wished to revisit, the Köln of his youth, well before the Allied bombers had turned it to blackened rubble. Before he knew it, the fields had faded, and specters of his beloved city rose in their place. The Kölner Dome, with its Gothic vaults and massive spires, Hohenzollern Bridge, crossing the mighty Rhine, Severin-Storburg City Gate at Koldvigplatz, the ancient rat house at Innenstadt. The illusions warmed the old man's heart. He'd just begun to envision the café at Schildergasse, where he'd first met his darling Nadia, when a meek voice spoke, shattering the reverie. Senor Resden? Sneering, the old man snapped his head left and looked to see who disturbed him. It was Manquello, his head housekeeper. The man stood at the villa's rear entrance, head bowed, eyes sheepish. The old man, who currently went by the name of Resident, responded in Spanish. What is it, Manquello? My apologies, senor, but you have a guest. Resident peered at his servant, conveying a silent question. The housekeeper shook his head. We have searched him thoroughly. No weapons, no communication devices. He certainly is not from Kazapa. I would guess he's African or Haitian. What does he want? He wishes to speak with the man of the house. He will say no more. Resden rubbed his thick white beard, pondering who this caller might be. Mossad seemed unlikely. Sending in a single man, a Schwarzer at that, was not their style. They were more apt to descend on him en masse, ambush him outside his home as they'd had with Eichmann back in sixty. No, whoever this was, they weren't interested in his capture. His money or employment, perhaps, but not his capture. Very well, Resident said, patting the wrought iron table before him. Escort him here. Have Ricardo keep watch. Monquello nodded and went outside. Not a minute later, he returned with the visitor. The man was tall and muscular and wore a vanilla white linen suit with a matching Panama-style hat. His skin was the color of tar, and his eyes shone brightly within their dark sockets. 
Instead of announcing the man's name, Manquello simply extended his arm outward toward Resden. The Schwarzer flashed a pearly rictus at the servant and started across the flagstone patio. Reaching the table, the visitor removed his hat, revealing a cleanly shaven pate upon which beads of sweat had gathered like flies. Resident rose to greet him. "'Thank you for agreeing to see me, Herr Resident,' the man said in perfect high German. He did not offer to shake hands. Resident was surprised to hear his native language flow so elegantly from the Schwarzer. "'How do you know my name?' he responded in German. "'And to whom am I speaking?' The visitor fished a handkerchief from his breast pocket. Ah, but what's in the name, Herr Resident? The pearly teeth reappeared. Or do you prefer Herr Schreiber in private? The color drained from Resident's face. His eyes shot to the butter knife on his breakfast plate, and for an instant he considered plunging it into the man's skull. What kept him from doing so was the realization that he would probably fail at the task. The arthritis in his hands would likely prevent him from holding the knife securely enough to drive it home. Plus, it seemed a poker game of some sort had just been initiated. The Schwarzer obviously knew things about him, and as such it seemed prudent to find out more before acting. "'Why would I prefer a name that is not my own?' he said as calmly as he could. The black man dabbed the sweat from his head. Hot today. This suit, it's light, but perhaps I should have dressed in something more economical, like you. He motioned to Resden's simple garments, which consisted of a white short-sleeve button-up, chino trousers, tawny work boots, his Friday clothes, as he always toured the fields he owned on Fridays. On any other day, he'd have been in his usual business attire. Resden measured his guest. Listen, my friend. I have a busy day ahead, and I'm in no mood for games. State your business or leave. Games, his visitor said. Word has it that you were once quite fond of games. Resident glanced at the villa's second floor and saw Ricardo's outline in the far left bedroom window. He looked back at the Schwarzer. Permit me to say this more clearly. "'so there is no misunderstanding. "'Get to your point or risk a bullet through the head. "'One of the finest riflemen in Schirsner's army is in my employ, "'and he has you in his sights at this very moment. "'One gesture for me, and it's all over for you.' "'The old man sat down in his chair. "'So, please, aim your business.' "'The Schwarzer's smile vanished.' He flicked a glance at the villa. "'As you wish, Herr Resden. He indicated the chair across the table from the old man. "'May I?' Feeling he'd regained a semblance of control, Resden said, "'Oh, I insist.' Gratitude. His visitor sat in the chair and placed his hat on his lap. "'My name, if you wish to know, is Esaias Melaku.' and I am here to present a proposal to you. See how easy that was? Resident replied, a familiar smugness creeping into his tone. Now, what kind of proposal? The Schwarzer's eyes seemed to glitter. I imagine it is the kind that you will like, Herr Resident, for if the correct pieces fall into place, it may allow you to go home safely after all these years spent abroad. Resden felt his composure begin to waver again, but managed to rein it back in. "'I'm afraid you're mistaken, Herr Malaku. I am home. By the way, what kind of name is Malaku, anyway? I do not recognize it.' "'You would say Ethiopian,' the man said, but that is not important. Your longing to return to the country that will no longer have you is, however—' Longing? Is that not what I've been seeing all these mornings as I've watched you here in your backyard, staring into the distance? A longing? Resden's mouth twitched. You've been watching me? For some time, yes. 
Tell me, do you not constantly daydream about returning to the fatherland to see your darling Nadia? Resden's pulse quickened. Anger spread through him like wildfire. How could this dirty Schwarzer know any of this? Enough, he seethed, slamming his hand on the table for effect. You need to tell me who you are right now, and you'd better be exact. His visitor eyed the fields beyond the villa. I am but a functionary, Herr Reston, a gatherer of information. It is my unique talent. People hire me to learn what I can of other things, other people. By now it should be evident that I am good at my job. Resden took a few seconds to collect himself and process this. "'You are a swine, a digger of dirt is what you are,' he then said. "'But to what end with me?' "'What end indeed, Herr Resden? "'That, of course, depends on the choices you make in the coming minutes. "'But first, let me assure you, I have no affiliation with your Israeli friends. "'No, my employer in this instance is of Guarani descent.' "'A local?' Are you familiar with the name Miguel Castillo? Resden tutted at that. Of course he knew Miguel Castillo. Castillo was the newest player in the Casa Padrug scene, an ambitious upstart who'd come from the Bocarion region up north, where he'd worked for the Bolivian Maki family. Many of Resden's local contacts felt that Castillo's arrival in the area signals Maki's intent to expand south. So far, Castillo had kept to himself, though it was believed that this would change once he got established. Perhaps, the old man reasoned, the Schwarzer's appearance here meant Castillo had gained that establishment. I am aware of who he is, Resden said, wondering why Castillo would have any interest in his dealings, which were strictly agricultural. Good, the Schwarzer set his elbows on the table and steepled his fingers together. Before we get further into that, though, let us first drop the pretenses. Your name is not Carl Resden, nor is it any of your other aliases, Hermann Deitmar, Ivan Klausmann, or Hans Emmerich. It is Johannes Schreiber. Do you deny this? The old man closed his eyes, suppressing the flames burning within him. After a few seconds, he reopened them and focused on the African. It seems useless to do so. Excellent, Esaias Malaku said. Now, let me tell you a little more about you. Speaking with slow precision, the dark-skinned man picked through Johannes Schreiber's life, delivering a clinical account of the events that had shaped it. He began with a brief summary of Schreiber's first 18 years, covering the date of his birth, the names of his parents and siblings, and speaking of their happy life on the farm. Then, with uncanny detail, his visitor went on to describe the outbreak of the Great War and his father's conscription to fight on the Western Front and subsequent death at Ypres by chlorine gas. He also spoke of his brother Conrad and his decision to join the fight, only to die at Bucharest the next winter. A particularly harsh winter back home, Esaias correctly added, with food shortages making people desperate enough to scavenge food from the farm, which caused numerous violent confrontations. Here the African paused to ask how he was doing. Johannes Schreiber, not resident, stared impassively at the man, checking his temper while his mind worked to figure out how the Schwarzer could have possibly come across any of this information. It was so long ago, and he was nobody back then. Fine, he grudgingly conceded. Go on. Esaias nodded. Losing your father and brother was a terrible burden, but you still had your mother and sisters. That is, until the Spanish flu came and stole them away, too. Their deaths were like boils upon your soul and nearly drove you insane, but somehow you went on. This, I might add, is when you first showed true promise. Unfortunately, the promise did not last long. After the funerals, something happened inside you. You were lost, 
alone and heartbroken, and decided to follow in your father's and brother's footsteps. You enlisted, became a sniper, and did quite well against the Russians. The total I have is fifty-eight confirmed dead. Does that sound right? Or was it more? Johannes curled his hands into fists, but didn't respond. Esaias smiled. I gather it would have been more if not for your shrapnel injuries, but even with them you had hoped to return to the front lines. Only the war ended before you got the chance, and instead you went back to Köln, to the farm. It was lonely there by yourself, and you drank a lot to pass the time. Many nights you even considered taking your own life. But you didn't, and sometime in 1920, like a ray of sunshine, Nadia entered the picture. Johannes softened this time at the mention of his wife and dwelled on his first encounter with her. It had been a rainy Monday afternoon, he remembered. He'd been eating alone at the Schülergasse Café. She was at the table next to him, also alone, and accidentally knocked her teacup onto the floor. He'd helped clean it up and brought her another. As thanks, she invited him to her table. They hit it off and from there it was all fire and romance. Esaias covered the gist of their relationship, then added, In the summer of twenty the two of you married. As a gift, her wealthy father sent you on a trip around the world. Upon your return you got a job at the Motorenfabrik Deutz factory in Köln. You moved into a flat and started a family. Had Frederick and Julia... You didn't have much, but led a happy life for the next decade. Here again you showed much promise. Johannes lingered on that last bit. It was the second time the Schwarzer had touched upon the concept of promise. What was that supposed to mean? Going into the thirties, Esaias continued before Johannes could inquire about it, Germany had become a sickly beast, traveling on fragile lakes, but alas, through the malaise a savior rose, Herr Hitler, with all of his ideas and his thousand-year Reich. Johannes detected an air of sarcasm in the Schwarzer's tone, which even after all these years he could not abide. Speak in jest, Borenkopf, but Hitler was a godsend for Germany. He was, Esaias agreed unless you were a Jew. The Jew, Johannes said, chewing on the word like it was rotten meat, was the root of all Europe's problems. Their subversion and backstabbing cost us the Great War, while their corrupt business dealings and money hoarding led to the Depression. And so they had to go, Esaias edged in, his smile returning. Yes, in fact, you yourself had a sizable role in this regard during the Second War, did you not? Johannes glowered at the African, a caustic retort caught in his throat. But to everything it's reason, right? Esaias declared. In your case, you believed the Jew killed both of your children and raped your wife. The statement hit Johannes like a wrecking ball, shattering the tenuous walls he'd put up around the event. He sucked in a breath, and it all came rushing back. The polizai coming to the factory, explaining what had happened, consoling him. Later on, learning the full story, that the crazed man had broken into the flat, knocked Nadia unconscious, then killed the kids and raped Nadia. Before leaving, he'd knifed her twice in the belly for no reason. Nadja had survived the attack, but it had destroyed her mentally and in time forced Johannes to commit her to an institution. Believed, Johannes spat. It was a fucking Jew. The police caught the little rat and obtained his confession. Then the Gestapo rightly executed him. I got to watch. And what if I told you her killer was not a Jew, but instead a regular German citizen with mental illness? Esaias said coldly. I'd call you a dirty fucking liar. Esaias sighed. You were at a crossroads at that point. You could have gone many directions, but what did you do? You turned to the SS, who embraced you after learning what had happened to your family. 
They trained you, conditioned you, and sent you off to a new camp in Poland called Sobibor, where you worked under the tutelage of Commandant Franz Strangl. This, I'm afraid, is where all promise was lost, where you first got a taste for. Fuming, Johannes yelled at Esaias to stop. He didn't need to hear any more. He punctuated his point by smashing his coffee cup to the ground. At once, Monquello appeared at the rear of the villa, Ruger in hand. Johannes waved him off, then glared at Esaias. "'Very good, Morenkopf. You've proven your point. You know my background. Now what is it that Castillo wants with this information? What is this proposal?' Esaias held his glare. "'What my employer wants is very simple, Herr Schreiber.' He wants you to leave Paraguay for good and sign over all land and business holdings, employees included. Johannes blinked several times. Pardon? If you do not agree to this, today, you will be detained by Castillo's people, and the information I've gathered will go to the Mossad. If, however, you comply... You will be permitted to return to Germany with a new identity and all of your money holdings. Herr Castillo is actually impressed with your former career and is willing to grant you his favor because of it. Esaias paused. It's much to take in, so take your time. Speechless, Johannes got up from the table and wandered over to his garden, where he stared emptily at his tomatoes and bell peppers. Looking inward, he supposed he'd always expected this day would come, in some form or another. Now that it was here, he wasn't sure what to do or how to feel. After an uneasy length, he concluded he had no choice but to agree. Castillo had all the cards, and Johannes had little doubt the man would kill him, or worse, let the Israelis have him if he turned the offer down, an offer, if legitimate, which was actually quite generous, given the circumstances. Decision made, he returned to the table. Herr Melaku, he said, you may tell your employer I accept his terms, but on one condition. Yes. I will sign everything over to Herr Castillo, but only after I am safely returned to Germany, said Johannes. In specific. The Ethiopian leaned forward. I expected as much, Herr Schreiber. The tickets are already purchased. We leave for the fatherland tomorrow afternoon. You will meet me and Machiel in the morning. We will take the train to Asuncion and fly out at 2 p.m. I will have all the documents necessary for the trip. Johannes's eyebrows ticked upwards. We? Oui? I'll be traveling with you, see you through to Köln. Herr Castillo anticipated you would not want to sign the papers while still in Paraguay, so I will go with you and bring back the papers myself. He already has the official transfer documents drawn up. Esaias got up from his chair and placed his Panama hat on his head. If it helps, I've located Nadja, and I believe it's possible for you to see her upon your return. Johannes's breath caught in his chest. You... you found Nadja? Yes, she's alive and well. Johannes's steely facade melted and he bowed his head. Leaving Nadja behind had been the single hardest thing he'd ever done, a wrong he could never right because any attempt to do so would have put him at risk. If there was a chance he'd get to see her again, then giving up all his holdings here was but a minor sacrifice. Okay, Johannes said. We have a deal. Good, Esaias replied. I'll leave you now so you can attend to your affairs before you leave. Be at the Machiel station by seven. If you don't show, or if you arrive with others, I cannot guarantee your safety. So saying, the man turned and started towards the villa. Johannes watched him leave, then stared out again at the Paraguayan countryside. Emotions churned within him, and a whirlwind of conflicting concepts spun in his head. Germany, Köln, double-cross, new identity, fresh start, unmarked grave, 
lies, truth, forgiveness, retribution. Nadia, this poor, sweet, broken Nadia. If by some miracle he wasn't killed tomorrow and everything went as planned, would she even recognize him? Would she want to see him? Would she hate him for abandoning her? Feeling very strange about it all, he headed into the villa to begin preparing for his journey. A ghostly mist pranced about Johannes's rambler as he navigated Machiel's empty streets. It was unusual to see such mist in this part of the country, but Johannes didn't put much stock in its unusualness. He was a man of reason, of science, and didn't believe in omens. He found the train station easily enough, parked and left the rambler's keys under the front seat. He'd instructed Manquello to come for it later and keep it himself. The housekeeper had been a loyal servant over the years, and Johannes wished to reward that loyalty. Since the villa and the fields were to be transferred to Castillo, the car was the best he could do. Grabbing his two suitcases from the back seat, he scaled the steps to the station's platform and looked round for Esaias. The African was seated at a bench in the middle of the platform. He had no suitcase with him, just his hat and his vanilla suit. "'No luggage?' Johannes asked as he approached the Schwarzer. "'I always travel light,' Esaias replied, standing. Johannes set his suitcases down. He and the African were the only two on the platform. The station's office building was equally deserted. It didn't even look open. I didn't know the station still operated. Less than it used to, so I hear, Esaias said. Johannes panned the streets and shops near the station, all empty of human activity. He didn't know whether to be glad or worried about this. Be truthful, Herr Malaku, he said. Does Castillo intend to dispatch me this morning? Esaias smiled that big smile of his. Your life has more purpose than that today, he said, then peered down the tracks at the large black train approaching from the south. Johannes looked too and saw that it was an older steam engine, similar to the ones that operated in Europe during the thirties and forties. The hulking machine chug-a-chug-chugged its way up. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. 
Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. To the platform and ground to a halt with a noise like that of a dragon in its death throes. Johannes counted ten cars in all the engine, two fancy passenger cars, and seven rickety freight cars. The freights in particular caught his interest, drawing to mind various scenes he'd witnessed long ago during his tenure in the SS. Trains coming and going from the ghettos and the camps, transporting all manner of human cargo. Sometimes the cars were just as effective as the cyclone bead granules they dropped into the showers, as whole trainloads occasionally showed up with the entire cargo expired. The second passenger car's door hissed open in front of him. Shall we then? Esaias prompted. Johannes peered at Esaias, nodded, and picked up his suitcases. There was no conductor or any other train employee waiting to take their tickets. Esaias entered the car first with Johannes following. Once inside, he set his suitcases next to the first set of seats. This way, the Schwarzer directed, heading toward the rear of the car. Johannes grabbed his luggage again and tailed closely behind. He expected the man to stop at each of the rows they passed, but Esaias kept going. When they got to the furthest row and still didn't sit, he spoke up. Where are we going, Malaku? There are no more seats. My mistake, Esaias said, opening the car's rear door. Wrong car. What? Johannes said. There are only freights that way. Esaias stepped across the bridgeway between the two cars and opened the opposite door. No, this is the correct one, Herr Schreiber, I am sure of it. He entered the doorway and vanished into the rectangle of black beyond. Still arguing his point, Johannes pursued the African into the darkened car. I'm not mistaken, you damn fool, he said. This is for cargo. The door slammed shut behind him, a familiar and awful sound resonating across several decades. You're right about that, he heard Esaias whisper in the dark. Cargo. The breath left Johannes's lungs, and everything changed. A foul odor began to arise in the dark, the potent medley of excrement, urine, sweat, and fear. What is this? Johannes called out to Esaias. You know what it is, Johannes, the Schwarzer said, though it didn't quite sound like Esaias's voice anymore. You've tricked me. Tricked, Esaias echoed. The words you say. Somewhere in the dark, a baby started crying. Johannes dropped his luggage. So Castillo does intend to... Johannes, the African interrupted, I've never met Miguel Castillo, not yet at least. What? Then who do you work for? What is the purpose of this? Johannes retreated to the door he'd just come through and reached for the handle. His hands could not find it. Two more babies began crying. The car shuddered and the train jolted forward. Johannes patted the wall furiously, searching for the door. He went to lash out at Esaias, but then it dawned on him that he wasn't Johannes Schreiber anymore. Not completely. There was another consciousness in him, a man named Stefan Garlinski, a Polish Jew from the Lodes ghetto. He was on the train with his wife, Sarah, and their two children, Sylvia and Eva, plus Sarah's parents. Stefan's own parents were dead, shot during the September campaign, when the Germans, Soviets, Slovaks first invaded Poland, essentially setting off the Second World War. You had so much hope, so much promise, Esaias whispered, though it wasn't really Esaias speaking. You've suffered much tragedy, which I do regret, but you had your chances— you had every chance to become more than you did, every chance to become what you should have become. 
it occurred to Johannes that they weren't speaking German anymore. He believed from the inflections it was Polish. Therewith other realizations bubbled up in his head. What are you? he asked the thing, claiming to be Esaias Malaku. What is your real name? Names, names, the Esaias thing said. I have no name, Johannes. I am merely a functionary, one of many, and you are my burden. We had such hopes for you, we really did, but you failed us miserably. So we are here. Understanding came to Johannes in stark epiphanal waves then. I didn't fail anything. Life failed me, he protested. I know what you are now, yes, and I know your other names. He thought quickly and drew upon what he knew of the lore. If you are that, it, then shouldn't you favor me? Shouldn't you wish me praise and reward? The Esaias thing chuckled. What you think I am doesn't exist, it whispered. Malice is strictly a human quality. Here. The whisper faded into nothingness, and Johannes knew his accuser was gone. Moans arose around him. He sensed people taking form in the boxcar. The pains of old age left him, and he was young again, twenty-four years old and a Jew. He and his family were headed to Auschwitz, along with the rest of these poor people. The weight of this revelation weakened his knees. His legs turned to rubber, and he collapsed to the floor, unconscious. Johannes woke some time later, a passenger in Stefan Garlinski's body. Aware of himself and mentally patched into Garlinski's thoughts and feelings, but physically unable to influence the man's actions. I'm a Jew, Johannes thought, appalled. I'm a stinking Jew. You fainted, a woman's voice said beside him. Sarah, his wife of six years. Tired, Stefan said, and Johannes felt as if he had said it himself. They were sitting on the boxcar's dirty floor, the entire family. Other Polish Jews from Lodz were either sitting or standing around them. They'd been traveling for three days to a mysterious camp called Auschwitz, where hopefully they'd be used as a labor force as they had been in Lodz. You must be strong, Stefan, Sarah urged, taking his hand. We've lived through much already. God willing, we will continue to live. Johannes expected to feel revulsion at the Jewess's touch. Instead, it was joy he felt her hands reminding him of Nadja's, so soft and strong and loving. Stefan ruminated on his wife's words. That they were still alive was a true miracle. During the German invasion, they barely escaped the initial onslaught and were forced to live threadbare existences in locales throughout Masovia, their home province. Fortunately, there'd been a few Gentile sympathizers brave enough to hide them from the SS, and turncoat Polish police. When this became too risky for their hosts, however, they'd had to flee into the forests of Wiskow, Plonsk, and Zapki, and seek refuge in the makeshift camps built by other hiding Jews. For three long years they'd lived in these little forest communities, constantly moving from place to place. Then, in early forty-four, it all came to an end when the turncoat stumbled upon their camp and turned them over to the Nazis. For sport, the SS had executed half of the thousand strong refugees, while the other half were put on trains and shipped off to the Lodz ghetto. Life in Lodz had not been what Stefan had expected. While it was true they were once again amongst many Jews, the conditions within the walls had by then deteriorated to the point of dissociation, and most people were only interested in their own welfare. Brotherhood did exist, but only in small and transient pockets. In any case, survival depended primarily on one's ability to work. Stefan and Sarah were lucky enough to possess exploitable skills. Stefan, a blacksmith, and Sarah, a nurse, 
and thus were able to find sustainable employment. Some of their forest companions were not so exploitable and did not last very long. Throughout their brief tenure in that hellhole, Stefan and Sarah learned a great deal about the horrors being perpetrated by their captors. A perfect example, they'd been told, had occurred several years earlier in Lodz itself. Due to overcrowding, the Nazis had gone to the ghetto's appointed Jewish leader, Chaim Rubkowski, and demanded 20,000 children be handed over for deportation. Rumkowski, being of the mind that they should do anything to survive, asked the parents of Lodz to hand them over. Cut off the limbs to save the body, he beseeched. The population nearly revolted, but Rumkowski managed to induce calm and get the children, along with a number of elderly, for the SS, and off they all went, each to their deaths. Johannes remembered hearing of the incident and recalled how amused he'd been by the reports of screaming parents crazed by the removal of their little Jew progeny. At present, it didn't strike him as all that funny, for he couldn't help but envision having to voluntarily give up Frederick and Julia. Stefan had caught wind of other chilling tales while in Lodz, and rumors abounded as far as what lay ahead, but Stefan shielded his family from these as best he could and still held out hope that things would get better. With God's help, the advancing Russians would reach the ghetto sooner than later, and the war would end before many more died. As it happened, in the spring of '44, the Russians did get close, but the SS proved their mettle by immediately shipping 7,000 Jews to the death factory at Klemno for liquidation. Two weeks later, with Klemno being dismantled due to the enemy advance, the remaining 60,000 Lodz inhabitants were then shipped to other camps, mainly Auschwitz. The train they were on was one of the last to leave the ghetto. Rumkowski and his family had already gone on a previous deportment. Word had it that they were already dead. Stefan didn't know if there was any truth in that. But miracle of miracles, his family was still alive, and that was all he had room to care about. Reminiscing over all of this, Stefan sat up and took Sarah's hand. I'll be strong, he promised. We'll be okay. We're going to make it, you'll see. I wouldn't count on it, Johannes mused. You're on your way to das Vernichtungslager. Diefenbach was wrong. Work does not make you free. Not in there. It only makes you a corpse. In the dark next to them, Sarah's mother began to whine. It was a low, ebbing sound that soon rose into a full-on wail. Jakub, she cried. Oh, my dear Jakub. Stefan went to her, then located his stepfather, who was sprawled on the floor. He found the man's neck and felt for a pulse. Nothing. He's gone, Sarah, Stefan told his wife. I'm so sorry. Your father's gone. His heart, I think maybe it finally gave up. Sarah wailed too, and by custom tore at her clothes. Thereafter they all embraced. Stefan, the senior male now, gave the death blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, the true judge. Since they had no hope of Tahara, the preparing of the body for burial, they then began reciting the Kaddish. When they were finished, they all fell into silent prayer, wishing Yakub safe passage to the afterlife. Two hours later, the train came to a noisy stop. Stefan pushed his way to the car's sliding door and tried to look through the slats. It was dark beyond. All he could see were dozens of bright spotlights and dozens of dark silhouettes. Amongst the silhouettes there was a great commotion, rife with shouts in German and the vicious barking of guard dogs. "'We've arrived,' someone in the car said. "'Oswichim. Auschwitz.' "'Das Stammlager,' Johannes thought." recalling how anxious he'd been when he first arrived at the administrative camp. 
Hurst himself had requested his services after learning of his achievements at Sorbibor, and he hadn't wanted to disappoint the Obersturmbahnfuhrer. He was equally anxious now as Stefan waited in the dark, though for a far different reason. They waited ten minutes, then the door whipped open and several SS enlisted men were standing there, yelling for them to get out. Eager to escape that stinking car, the people poured out and were gathered into a large group. Stefan kept the family together, dread roiling in his heart. As he was herded into the group, he looked back at the car and saw that at least twelve of his fellow passengers had perished during the trip, including his stepfather. In time, their group became part of a larger procession of Jews. The SS guards, along with a group of angry men in striped garb, ushered them along toward a gathering of SS officers, who were mostly doctors deciding which way the Jews were to go, to the left or to the right. As the line moved along, Stefan noticed that women, children, the elderly, and the infirm were being sent left, and able-bodied men and some of the sturdier women were being directed to the right. Selection, Johannes knew. Those to the left were to be gassed immediately. Those to the right would work for the German machine until they could work no more. Either way, most were destined for the ovens. Stefan looked ahead and saw a ghastly scene unfold. There was a boy of about four in the group before theirs who had a small suitcase and an apple. One of the SS guards saw the apple and approached the child. "'Little rodent,' the guard said in a genial tone. "'Give me that apple.' The child's parents urged the boy to comply, but the boy shook his head no and tried to hide the apple in his coat. Infuriated, the guard snatched the boy by his feet and slammed him hard against the train's wheels, shattering the child's head. The child dropped limp and his father went crazy. The guard easily subdued the malnourished man, unholstered his pistol and shot him in the head. The child's mother attacked then and also got a bullet in the head. Satisfied no one else was going to attack, the guard holstered his weapon, picked up the apple, and took a bite. Smirking as he chewed, he resumed his patrol. Sarah clutched her children tight and looked to Stefan, she wanted him to do something, but knew there was nothing he could do. Stefan, she said. I know, he replied. It's okay. It's going to be okay. But I know. I'm thinking. All too quickly, they reached the front of the line. An SS doctor glanced Stefan over and jerked his thumb to the right. The stone-faced man then sent Sarah, Eva, Sylvia, and Sarah's mother to the left. Stefan rushed to grab hold of his wife and daughters, but was greeted by a club to the head. The blow knocked him to the ground. Vaguely, he heard his women calling out to be with him, and next he knew hands were dragging him the other way. Watching this happen, Johannes wondered what he would have done if someone had tried to pry him away from Nadja and Frederick and Julia. He believed he would have fought, his younger self certainly would have, but he could no longer say for sure. Events moved fast for Stefan then. Registration, the buzzing of his hair, getting his prisoner number tattooed on his arm, work and barracks assignment, Birkenau, crematorium two, Zonderkommando, riding on a truck to the crematorium, learning he wouldn't have to wear the normal prisoner garb and would get to live in better conditions than the regular prisoners, a bed with a real mattress, liquor, plenty of food, the exchange being a four-month lifespan. It was dawn when the truck arrived at crematorium, too. Gouts of smoke poured from the structure's chimney stacks, out in a field next to the crematorium, smoke also rose steadily, but from a large pit instead of chimneys. Getting out of the truck, Stefan saw that about two hundred men were lined up at the edge of this burning pit, all naked and docile. A pair of SS men were tending to them, each starting on the opposite end of the line and working inwards towards each other, 
putting bullets in necks as they went along. As soon as they fired, they pushed or kicked the shot Jew into the pit. Not all of the victims were dead as they fell into the flames below, as evidenced by their screams. Johannes was well acquainted with the pyres. On occasion, he'd had to attend pyre duty. It had been his least favorite assignment, largely because of the stench. As he experienced it through Stefan's eyes and nose, however, it wasn't the miasma of burning flesh that put him off. It was the prospect of seeing his own family destroyed in such a grim fashion. Someone next to Stefan said, That, my brothers, is the Zonda Commando we are replacing. That will be us in a matter of months. I think I shall attempt to drink myself to death. Someone else said, You don't know. Maybe if we are excellent workers, they will let us live longer, long enough for the Allies or Russians to arrive. The first man put a hand on the second man's shoulder. Perhaps, brother. Perhaps. They all wanted to believe, but in their hearts they understood they would die like the rest. Four months, five months, a year. Didn't matter when or how. When they served their purpose, they would be gassed and burned here, too. Stefan was convinced of this, but he no longer cared. If the rumors were true and his family had perished after the selections, then what was the use in living any longer? After getting settled into their new living quarters, which were more human than Stefan expected, they were immediately broken up into work details by the head of their commando, a man named Marich Polich, goods gatherers, gas chamber wards, body extractors, body transporters, crematorium processors, and oven workers. Stefan was assigned as an oven worker. Work in the crematorium was brutal on body and soul. His first twelve-hour shift nearly drove him insane. There were five three-door ovens in crematorium, too. The transport detail would bring the corpses in and stack them at the end of each oven line. Stefan and a co-worker would pick the bodies up and load them onto the sliding metal gurney. Three at a time worked best, he learned. Two smaller bodies with a larger, ideally fattier one. Human fat burned exceedingly well. They would then pour coke powder over the bodies and load them into the ovens. A half hour later, they'd repeat the sequence over and over. Around noon on the third day, Stefan made a frightening discovery. The faces on the corpses, usually so waxen and nondescript, began to look familiar. After the first few batches, he realized why. They were receiving gassed members of the Lodes ghetto, members that had come on the train before theirs, people he knew, some that were friends. A sallow, gray fear germinated inside him, but he continued his steady work, for it was all that he could do. Two days later, the faces of the corpses were those of the Jews on his train. His already unsteady hands became seismic, and he kept eyeing the piles of corpses being carted in. Three hours into his shift, his worst fears became reality, for it was then that he saw them, his women, Sarah, Ava, Sylvia, and stepmother Greta, their naked, lifeless bodies entwined with other women's corpses. Stefan at once tackled the Sonderkommando member pushing the cart and pulled the bodies of his beloved onto the floor. He screamed at the other workers to look away and wept over the glossy-eyed ladies he loved so much, so very much. "'I'm so sorry,' he cried. "'Sarah, my girls, I love you. I will join you soon, I promise.' He planted soft kisses on their waxen foreheads and said a prayer to ease their passage into the next realm. By then, the SS overseers of the crematorium had noticed the hitch in the workflow and came to investigate. Stefan looked up and saw a man named Oberscharfuhrer Popitz and another named Oberscharfuhrer Schreiber standing there, grinning at him. 
Johannes was taken aback at the sight of his younger self and could scarcely believe the glee in his eyes at Stefan's suffering. What was worse, he actually remembered this incident. It was the first time he'd witnessed a prisoner attack an SS guard. Why Moore had never attempted revolt had long puzzled him. In fact, the overall passivity of the Jew and their willingness to go quietly to their deaths had only served to deepen his hatred of them. But not now. In this surreal moment, he felt numb. "'What's the matter?' Popitz asked Stefan in German, which Stefan barely understood. "'Why have you stopped working?' He kicked Sarah's dead foot. "'Oh, I see. Do you know these dirty whores? This one here looked like a good fuck at her day. Maybe she still is.' Beside him, the young Oberscharfuhrer Schreiber tittered softly. Stefan, propelled into a rage by the Nazi's words, vaulted to his oven, snatched the long poker he used to push the corpses into the flames, and came at Popitz like a rabid animal. The poker struck Popitz in the chest, but Stefan was too weak to drive it home. The officer deflected the pointed end so that it jabbed into his shoulder instead and shouted a furious lament. At his side, Schreiber drew his pistol and aimed it at Stefan's head. Stefan looked his killer in the eye and welcomed the bullet's arrival. Johannes looked himself in the eye and felt a sense of disgust oozing through the numbness. There was a flash from the end of the pistol, a brief instance of pain, and then everything went black. Stefan Garlinski was no more. An unknown time passed. Then a voice spoke in the formless dark. It was the Esaias thing. A different perspective, yes? Johannes took his time before answering. Yes, he eventually said. It was. And your impression? I understand now, Johannes said. Your point, Balaku, it is made. No, Johannes, it is not, the Esaias thing told him, and you do not yet understand. That was but one life you took, a glimpse. It has been determined that you are responsible for 62,118 more between Auschwitz and Sobibor. Johannes contemplated the gravity of that. No, he begged. This is enough, please. Perhaps a gypsy girl this time, a twin for Mengele's experiments. Johannes could already feel himself taking shape again, his essence being drawn into another human, this one younger than the last, with a bony frame and female parts. The name of the girl was Mirella Shimza, a barely pubescent Roma gypsy from Hungary on her way to Auschwitz. She and her twin sister Lala had been captured, along with their mother and father and hundreds of other Roma near Budapest. Reviled as much as the Jews, they'd been confined to a small camp for a couple of days before being forced on this train. Johannes realized he knew the girl and her sister. He'd been walking from the crematorium early one evening after his shift, on his way to the main camp to speak with administrative officials. Still new to the grounds at that point, he'd accidentally wandered by the Zigeuner lager, where all the gypsies were collected. As he walked past, he noticed the pretty sisters standing by the fence. Remembering that the camp doctor was always on the lookout for twins for his experiments, he made a mental note of the girls and mentioned them to Mengele the next time their paths crossed. Afterwards, he thought nothing of them. But they were going to die anyway, Johannes pointed out. Why is it my responsibility? Because they'd been overlooked, the Esaias thing replied, and would have lived if not for you. Johannes was inclined to protest more, but suspected it didn't matter. 
Yes, Johannes, the Esaias thing said. No more arguing. Johannes thought of Nadja and his daughters. If he could have wept, he would have. Again the train jolted forward. That was W.B. Stickle's Selection, as read by Martin Rato. In a variegated working life, Martin has been a parent, a technical writer, and software developer, a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, symphony musician, and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Thank you, Martin. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk. Thanks to our webmaster, Josh Leitze, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 